We're continuing our conversation on Christian praxis, how Christians interact with the world, how we relate to it, how to be in the world but not of it, specifically in this conversation regarding faith and technology. The point I'd like for us to consider in this part of that conversation is the role of communication technologies and conflict. So communication technologies, that can be emails, that can be phones, cell phones or otherwise, that could be texting, that could be social media, any kind of technology that enables people to communicate with each other, whether it's over short distances or long distances, whether you see their face or don't see their face, whether you hear their voice or just see a written word, communication technologies have a role to play in conflict. And for us as believers, we need to know, like, what does that mean for us? When should we use our communication technologies, like texting or email or Facebook? When should we not? If we find ourselves in a conflict, what role do those communication technologies play in either helping to resolve conflict or in making conflict worse? Could you think of some examples of when technology actually makes conflict happen? Maybe the example comes to mind of someone saying uh, something via text, but with no punctuation, no capitalization, no nothing, and so the word just comes across. Maybe they say, nice, and that person takes it as sarcastic, like, nice, because you can't hear the inflection, you can't hear the tone of someone's voice. So maybe a conflict, someone gets irritated, a conflict arises because the communication medium is not sufficient to actually communicate. You know, texting is good for, see, in five minutes, but if it tries to communicate sarcasm or if it tries to communicate emotion, you've got to fill with all sorts of exclamation points and emojis just to make sure that the person on the other end knows which way to take your words. You know, to pick on texting again, isn't there times where our communication technologies make conflicts worse? Someone says something offensive, but maybe instead of talking with them about it, we post something about it online. Or maybe instead of trying to resolve it, the text we send to them is another sarcastic comment to add to the increasing offenses and frustrations between you and this other person. You know, an email can be a great thing. You, you put some information, you send it across, but sometimes emails are these heavy, uh, even condemning vehicles of information. You know, loaded up with all these thoughts that you had time to prepare and, and think about every single word and, and put it into place and then just drop it on someone like a ton of bricks. And they're overwhelmed by all these thoughts all at once and they don't have a chance to chime in so then you get their email back and it's another five-page list of all the thoughts they have all at once. It's not a dialogue at that point. It's a monologue. It's attacking. It's two individuals speaking into air and so the conflict is getting worse. You can see it in so many different ways. Facebook, someone has an opinion. Okay, fine, they have their opinion. But then 5,000 other people decide to voice their opinions, and now the opinions conflict. And now the parties get heated. And now the conversation becomes personal attacks instead of discussing a point. We see it all the time. We don't need to belabor this point. But just 
ask ourselves as Christians, if we're trying to avoid conflict, how do we need to be careful with communication technologies? And if we're in conflict, what forms of communication technologies do we need to stay away from? Which ones are helpful? And in what ways? Now, faith isn't this abstract kind of thing. Our theology is not abstract. It is tangible and practical. Your theology will determine whether or not you send a mean text to someone. That's what I mean. It's practical. If we study in God's Word today about how to handle conflict and we don't see texting and we don't see a one-way conversation and we don't see sarcasm as being biblical principles for resolving conflict, then when we go to resolve conflict, we're going to find ways to avoid those negative approaches and approach it from a biblical perspective. So the text will not just be a text or not, it will be how do I as a Christian live out biblical principles of conflict resolution with all the options at my disposal. Do I do it publicly? Do I do it privately? Do I do it on an email? Do I do it face-to-face? -face? Do I make a phone call? Do I do it on Facebook? Do I send a text? And the list goes on. That's what we want to try to tackle today. It's a very relevant topic. All of us have made mis mistakes, myself included, in sending emails or in texting or in making phone calls and in not handling these things the way we should. And afterwards, we see how it kind of magnifies or see how it blows up in our faces even at times and we feel terrible about it. Well, let's learn from Scripture. Let's learn from our mistakes. Let's not be naive to how technology really can play a significant role. Above and beyond whatever problems we have with people, the technology can either be a help or a hindrance, another problem thrown into the mix. So let's be really savvy when it comes to how we handle it. The foundational point to all of this comes from the character of God. That's where we need to start with most things. That's where I want us to start with this topic as well. Our God is a communicating God. He's a revealer. He's an initiator and he's a reconciler. You know, he's the kind of God, the kind of being that reveals himself to people. That's what he's done over all of history from Adam and Eve to Abraham to the Old Testament to the New Testament to us today through Christ most especially, through the Holy Spirit continually. Yeah, it's what God does. He initiates, he speaks, and he reconciles. When we offend him with our sin, he doesn't just let us go. He, he seeks after us and calls out after us. Asks us to return to him as prodigal children. So, if God is this kind of God, then what means has he used over time to communicate with his people? Is he the kind of God that only writes things down on tablets of stone and hands them to his people? If all we ever had was the Ten Commandments, then we could say, yeah, God's kind of like an email God or a letter God, maybe even a texting God. He puts his stuff in writing and he hands it over. Yeah, except that's not the only way God has communicated, is it? You know, he shows up so many times. He just shows up and there he is face to face or through his angels or through his son or in a cloud or in a light or in a burning bush. He shows up to people. How about visions and dreams? He inspires people to their imaginations to come alive, to see things that he wants them to see. Our God speaks through visions, through dreams. He speaks through the written word through the Ten Commandments, through the recording of Scripture, the Bible that we have, it's God speaking. 
It's a record of God speaking, and it's actually God speaking. It's, it's a living word. The word of God is living and active. You know, God gives prophecies about the future. He came as a man. All of these and many more, right? We could think countless examples of God um, revealing himself to us. Think of uh, this passage here, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter, who walked with Jesus, he writes, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we are with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's talking about the Old Testament prophets predicting the Christ and speaking from God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus making the word of those prophets more certain. God the Father's voice from heaven. Just in this one passage, you've got so many different descriptions of the way God communicates. And if God is our example then every one of these methods is something that we can learn to imitate and emulate. The showing up, the face-to-face of God. Here I am, meet with me. The initiating of Jesus coming to sinful mankind, you know, tabernacling amongst us, as John 1 says. John 1, 9 through 18 says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So God made himself known because no one's ever seen God in all his glory. So the one and only Son of God, the Word, became flesh to reveal God to us, to make him known to us. This is the kind of God we see, a God that shows up, a God who then initiates, a God who gives written words. You know, what are the times where we should be writing something down? Think of all the books that have been passed down to us. Think about the New Testament letters of Paul, the thoughts of God put to paper to be preserved, to teach many more for countless years to come. The written word, the spoken word, the initiating word, uh, Jesus coming and living amongst us, not just showing up and saying, here I am, but making his dwelling among us, tabernacling amongst his people. Messengers, prophets, angels, visions, dreams. This is our foundation point for communication 
We are called to be people who reveal ourselves. We are called to be people who bridge and span across gaps and divides in order to bring two parties back together again in reconciliation. Um, We are called to be the voice of truth and speak into the darkness. All these things we find in the character of God and all of these things are meant to be things that we put into practice ourselves. You know, if we are made in the image of God, and if this is the character of God, then doesn't it actually feel like we're required to imitate God in these ways if we call ourselves his people? You know, John 1 talks about no one having ever seen God, but 1 John 4 also says, Beloved, if God so loved us, 1 John 4, 11, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. <clears throat> no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Think about that. The people around us haven't seen God either. They haven't seen the full glory of God. We all will one day, but we haven't yet. But when we love one another, when we have Christ's love, when we're in true brotherhood and sacrificial love, when we're one and united, then God's love is made manifest. God is made manifest to them. God abides in us in that moment and his love is perfected in us. So just as God came and was revealed through Christ, God is revealed through his people, us, by how well we love each other. And this specifically comes to bear in areas of conflict. The places where we're divided against each other, the places where we hate one another, the places where we judge one another, the places where we feel superior to one another, all of these things fly in the face of that unifying love of the body through the one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And if we want the world to see the God who no one's ever seen, it's going to happen through us. And so we are required to emulate God in speaking His love into this world and in being truth-tellers and conflict resolvers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Why sons of God? Because they will be just like him, making peace where there isn't any, stepping into conflict to help resolve it, to offer hope, to bring love and forgiveness. This is what God does for us, and we as people are called to do the same thing because no one's ever seen God But when we love one another that way, when we fight for peace and unity above all that way, we're just like God. We're just like our Father. That's when people are going to call us sons of God. We see the injustice. We see the conflict. And just like God, we're called to be an initiator and step into it to bring his truth. 2 Corinthians 5 refers to this as well says uh, in verse 16, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We look at no one in a human sort of way, is what he means. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him this way no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation, the job of it. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're supposed to speak up and fight for and stand for peace and reconciliation wherever we see that it's missing. If we're on Facebook and there's just a humongous argument going on, don't contribute to it. Bring peace into it. If you're in a marriage where things are tense and divided and there's anger and resentment and bitterness and guilt and shame, don't break it. Bring peace into it. Seek to reconcile it because that's our mission. To be reconciled is because God reconciled us. Bring peace and the conflict. God does this and we're his. So it's our duty to do this as well. When the texting starts going back and forth and conflict is arising, we need to remember we're ambassadors for reconciliation. When the emails start trading back and forth or the the phone calls are being passed around and spreading like wildfire and the whispers are happening and the gossip's going on and the slander's going on, we're Christians. We're like Christ. We're supposed to be like God in seeking to end it, not avoid it, Not ignore it, certainly not make it worse, but to bring peace into it and end the conflict. We're ambassadors of reconciliation. So this is the theological foundation for where we start. God is a communicating and reconciling and initiating God, and we are required to be communicating, reconciling, and initiating people of God if we are going to be called his children. Now, if we're going to move past the theology, if we could say it that way, or build upon that foundation of theology, the first and probably most important principle or advice that the Bible gives on conflict resolution is that we are supposed to go to. Go to the person we are in conflict with, not send them a message. It's the going to that will initiate conflict resolution. Sending them a text about our problems, sending them an email with all of our problems, firing away on Facebook all of our problems. This is not how conflict is going to be resolved. Now, we could say that these communication technologies aren't addressed in Scripture because they didn't exist. You know, show me the verse in the Bible where it talks about texting. Show me the verse in the Bible where it talks about emails. And I'm like, you're not going to find a verse that talks about an email. But this is not because the people of that day and age, think of the New Testament times or even the old, it's not because they didn't have long-distance communication. The whole New Testament practically are letters that are written. They had letter writing. They had messengers that would go from town to town and share news. Like, there was absolutely long-distance communication. If you didn't want to talk to someone face-to-face, you absolutely did not have to. You could send a messenger. You could send a message. Well, that's what we're doing. We just have different ways to go about it. Do we send a messenger? Do we send a message? 
or do we talk to someone face-to-face? Well, in Scripture, we find that only face-to-face is the way that the Bible commands us to resolve this conflict. But we prefer to send a message and hope that somehow the message will fix the problem. Or maybe we talk to a friend, and then that friend talks to another friend, and that friend talks to the person who we have a problem with. And so through a messenger, we send our points, our thoughts. This is not the way it's meant to be handled. This is not how God teaches us to handle conflict. This instruction on face-to-face going to someone is written down in Scripture because it is God's wisdom for how the humans He created need to operate in order to resolve conflict. He knows that we mostly just want to run and hide and avoid conflict and that we are far too often cowardly when we face it. But when we're in conflict, don't ignore it. Don't wait for the other person to come to you. Don't send them a message or a messenger with your grievances. Go to them and speak face to face. This is scripturally non-negotiable. This is non-negotiable. The Bible is consistent and repeated in its advice in this direction. So there's two halves of conflict, right? Someone who has been offended and someone who has offended someone else. Now we may say that if we haven't done anything wrong or if we're not the one that's offended, then it's someone else's problem, right? So you don't need to resolve some problem that all the problems that everyone else has around us, right? No. If someone has a problem with us, that's still our problem. And if we have a problem with someone else, that's obviously our problem. But it doesn't matter who is offended or who is the offender. The conflict is dividing the people of God, dividing brothers and sisters, dividing humans. And it must be addressed. If someone has offended you, you go to them. If you've offended someone else and you hear about it, or you find out somehow, or it dawns on you that you did, you go to them. There's two scriptures that talk about this, one from each direction. The first one's from Matthew 5, 21. Jesus says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. He's just quoting the Old Testament. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So even if you're just angry, even if you've just insulted someone, and even if you just mocked someone, might as well be the same thing as murdering them. Verse 23, to continue on, Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, so if you're in church, if you're at the temple, and there that you remember, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, means your brother thinks you did something to him, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift to God. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and there put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
So don't keep coming to church and singing songs and giving offerings and praising God and praying if you know that someone has been offended by you. Try to resolve it. Try to reconcile it. Is this easy? No. Will it be quick and painless? Probably not. But is it important? Yes. Is it life-threatening to the health of the body that you are worshiping as a part of? Yes. Those grievances become cancers. And unless they're rooted out, they kill the body. Divisions, fights, grudges, conflicts, gossiping, all that stuff kills the body of Christ. And just like with cancer, the longer you wait, the further it spreads. And the further it spreads, the harder it is to handle. The more cutting has to be done. And the more damage is done to the body. So don't just keep going through the motions. Taking communion, going to services, doing the thing that we call church. Probably inaccurately called church. But doing the religious services. When you, don't, when you realize or you know or on the side or in the back of your mind, you just have pushed off the fact that you're not right with your family. Don't come and pretend to be right with God if we're not right with our brother. First things first. Because when we really love each other, then even though no one's ever seen God, his love will be manifest then. And how much more powerful would it be if people see two humans loving each other who previously had hated each other? That's way more powerful than two people who have always been friends, just staying friends. So go ahead, give God the glory. Give him some glory. Reconcile with your brother or your sister and then come and start worshiping and see how that transforms your experience in worship and your testimony to the world. So that's one side. If you know that someone has something against you, don't just wait for them. Don't just leave it. Don't just say it's their issue. Go seek them out. God sought you out when you were estranged from him. Do the same for others. Now, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, talks about when it's you that has the problem. Someone has actually offended you. Someone has sinned against you. And it gives a process of trying to resolve it. Not just, oh, give it a try, and if it doesn't work too bad. No, the ongoing process. And there's three kind of steps in this process, but in my experience and in my personal opinion, I don't think that reconciliation is a three-step thing at all. It might be a five million step thing, but it's a direction. And so these verses aren't meant to be do one thing, then two things, then three things, and be done. These are meant to be work in this direction, maybe in these general categories or in this general process, uh, but it's not quick. It's people. And the goal is that we're together at the end of it and sometimes that takes time. So Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Keyword, alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother back. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen even to them, Tell it to the church. You know, bring it to the larger church as a whole or to the leadership of your church or to your pastor. Bring it to a church level. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as an outsider, like a Gentile or a tax collector. Because Christians make peace. And if we can't make peace, then how can we call ourselves part of the same family? A person might as well be just as the same as our neighbor who lives next to us that doesn't believe in God. Because if we were Christians, we would be working for reconciliation no matter how big the offense. 
So the process is when something happens, we go and talk to that person face-to-face alone. We do not talk to our closest Christian friends about it to get their advice on what we should do. We know what we should do. The Bible says what we should do. And it is not to go talk to your closest Christian friends about it. You do not need their opinion, and you do not need them to read you Matthew 18, 15. Now, if you are a Christian and someone comes to you and says, oh, I had someone say this to me or do this to me, and I wasn't sure how to handle it, but um, what do you think I should do? You immediately stop that person from talking any further. You say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't think that you should be talking to me. I can't help you resolve this situation until you've talked to this person one-on-one alone. That means don't talk to them in front of their kids. Don't talk to them in front of their spouse. Don't talk to them after church when a lot of people are around. Don't talk to them before or during or after a Bible study in someone's home. Don't talk to them publicly on social media. Talk to them alone. Go to them. Share where you've been hurt. This is how I feel you've sinned against me. Can we make this right? Can we make peace? And if the person listens, that's great. And if not, then go to someone and say to them, I've already had a conversation or two or five. It's just not going anywhere. I feel like we're not able to communicate. Can you be a third party intermediary? Now, this could be a pastor. It could be your uh, mentor in Christ. It could be a, a physical brother or sister. It could be a Christian brother or sister. Just bring a person that's a godly person that can sit in the room and help people communicate. So where the words are failing you, this person can fill in the gaps. This person is not on your side. There are not teams. This is not ganging up. This is just trying to help two people communicate because that's God's character and his will for us. And we're trying to reconcile If it doesn't work with that one or if a couple of people come along so that uh, it's helping everyone to communicate, then maybe go to your elders, go to your pastor and say, we need help and bring them into the conversation. The goal is not to judge or condemn the person who has sinned. The goal is to reconcile. And if it can't reconcile, then you may find yourself through no fault of your own actually divided from this person. But if you end up in a place where this person refuses to accept reconciliation, we should be able to say at the end of this like long process, we are doing and have done everything within our power. The Bible says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you. We've been, oh, like, I tried everything, and I would still be willing to try everything. The door is not closed, but I don't know where I can go from here. So we pray, God, give further opportunities. What part of this process could happen again? Is it another one-on-one conversation? Maybe you need space. Maybe this person is hardened and unrepentant. So we just need to pray for God to work on their heart, to soften them so that they can hear. So even after this process is over, after you're looking at someone as a foreigner, as a stranger, as an outsider, it doesn't mean that you're done looking for reconciliation. It just means it hasn't happened yet but it's always still God's heart to reconcile with us. And so even if this process feels like it has failed, quote-unquote, still have it in your heart to be willing to reopen the conversation and pursue unity and healing forever after. 
So if we're to bring it back to our technology question, you know, we're laying the foundation here for the first bit of advice. Is there any role for technology to play in this kind of go to someone? You know, is it ever right to have a conversation via text if you're not going to them, if they can't hear your emotions? Well, what are we trying to do? We're trying to resolve conflict. And I think a text would be perfect for saying, let's grab coffee tomorrow at 9. That's using it for what it's good for. It's connecting two people. When the person gets back to you and says, yeah, but what about this and why would you say this? We're not having a conversation via text. Use the technology for what it's good for. Connect two people so you don't have to drive to that person's house, knock on the door, have an awkward conversation about coffee the next day. No. Fire the text. Maybe technology could step in, in a situation where you're separated by an ocean from a family member. You know? You're on two different continents, but there's unresolved problems between you. You cannot afford to get together. You cannot afford to fly. You don't want you'll know when you'll see this person next. Think about the technology of Skype or FaceTime. Some of these opportunities that technology gives us to actually get face-to-face -face with someone far away. You could have a face-to-face -face conversation with someone on the other side of the globe, and that's an exciting opportunity that technology gives us to resolve conflict. But if we use Facebook and we make our conflict public, we are violating Scripture's commands. If we do not go to someone, but we try to stay away from them, we don't answer their calls so that we're not talking to them, even voice to voice, and we're just having our argument via text, kind of taking the easy way out and throwing in our sarcastic barbs all along the way, we are violating what the Bible says about how it's going to work. And if you're like me, you know that the times we've tried that, it didn't work. But I will tell you from my experience in countless situations of conflict, the Bible's advice always works. God's advice works. So when conflict is escalating or when it's happening, you're trying to figure out how to address it, the first principle, get face-to-face. -face. If you can't, use technology to try to help make that happen. And in all other ways, don't let technology come between you and another person. Face-to-face -face is scripturally non-negotiable at in any way possible. Now, there's a little aside I want to make here just about the value and concept of what friendship is. You know, if you consider yourself a close friend with someone, you know, that, that means something to us. It has a certain meaning. Like if you say, oh, I'm this person's friend. I'm this person's friend. But one of the impacts that technology, specifically things like Facebook and Instagram and some of these social media technologies, have had is that they very much watered down the biblical concept of what friendship actually is. You know, if you say I have X number of friends on Facebook, it doesn't really mean that all those people are your friends. It means the people that have friended you. So they've clicked a button and say, I want to see what you're up to, or I like you, or I remember you from school, or whatever. It does not mean that you are a close friend. If we have a bunch of followers or a bunch of friends, you know, sometimes that can be like a substitute friendship circle. And we may actually find that we don't have a real circle of friends, people that actually know us, 
people that are there through thick and thin. Instead, we have this kind of superficial group of people that we don't know too well and don't know us too well. And we start ourselves feel, getting feeling like we're more and more isolated. So you might be in contact with more people than ever possible in history before, but less connected human to human than you've ever been before. And the technology is that buffer. It's the wall between people. So yes, it can help you communicate across long distances, but it keeps you from being face-to-face and involved in someone's life. You know, the, the Facebook kind of world of applauding one another with a thumbs up or a smile or a like or all those kind of things. A real friend isn't just someone that always gives us a pat on the back and says, good job. Like, a real friend is the one who's like, hey, you got something stuck in your teeth or that was not the right way to handle that. And a friend will actually tell you things that you need to hear, not just ignore you or hide you on Facebook when you're saying things or doing things they don't like. A friend actually addresses those things. That's what a true friend is. You know, think of your real friends. They're not just always applauding you. And yet in this kind of online place, friends just mean sort of like people that are, they like you in some way. But it's not true friendship. We're diminishing the word friend. And if we are, we're in danger of actually losing what that word means. Now, if we talk about social media, we might say, I have this number of friends. Say you got like 100 friends online or whatever. But if you were talking about real social networks, actual people that you spend time with, that if you know, you've got to move, someone's going to help you pack boxes, and if you're sick and in the hospital, someone's going to visit you, they're like true friends, it'd be a much closer-knit group, a much smaller number than what's online. But take it a step further. What if there was that one or two or three people who you would trust your life with, who you would bear your soul to, You know, what if only that category of people were called friends? And what if some people never had anybody that actually got to that level? So that in conversation, you could say to someone, guess what? I have a friend. And their jaw drops. You have a friend? That's like a life-changing thing. That's a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing. That's a beautiful, that's a powerful thing. Instead, now we're like, yeah, I got some friends. Yeah, but are any of those friends really friends? See, the Bible's definition of friends is like that awestruck concept of someone who is there for you no matter what. A friend. You know, all capital letters, friend. And because we have so many now acquaintances, we're in danger of losing the concept that we need, all caps, friends. God has designed us for this, and we need this. Uh, There's a couple of Proverbs that come to mind on this. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love, and faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You know, an enemy might kiss you, a flattery. You know, think of like someone who doesn't really like you, someone who thinks they're better than you. They come and they give you a hug and a kiss and it's a nice smile and they turn around and they roll their eyes to the person next to them and they start to mock you. You know, an enemy is like, oh yeah, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best, and then turns and talks to their friends and says the opposite. A real friend could actually wound us and we would say, ah, that was a faithful thing to do. What kind of wound? A wound that says, you were wrong. 
What if one of our friends says to us, you should not have spoken that way to that person? And then we realize, it's like a mirror is just held up to our face. Wow, I think I really did damage with those words. I have to make that right. That's a wound from a friend. They just said, you were a jerk. You shouldn't have said that. But they were right. And it was good for them to say that. It was helpful. We say, thank you for saying that to me. Thank you for telling me how wrong I am. Because you are a true friend. And I could never become better without someone showing me where I can get better. So thank you for not just leaving me in my mess, but for showing me the way out of it. Now, better is open rebuke where someone says, knock it off, instead of hidden love. There's no words, there's no help. It's a secret, quiet thing that's not changing the other person. The other proverb is a Proverb 18.24, Solomon with all his wisdom speaking to this. This again just shows that people don't change. If this could have been written, you know, 3,000 years ago, uh, and people are people are people, uh, and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I, the Lord your God, do not change, and if Scripture is inspired, like, this is just perfect advice for today, and I kind of feel like Proverbs 18.24 is talking about social media, so I think that just speaks to its relevance across all time. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You can have 5,000 friends on Facebook, but you can still fall flat on your face and have no one there for you. But there is a friend. There is the sort of person that exists who could be your soulmate, who could be your best friend, who could be the one who's with you through thick and thin, the one who sees all your flaws but is just okay with it and loves you anyway, the person who's trying to make you a better person. And that kind of friend will stick closer even than a brother. Siblings might go separate ways. Just because you're siblings doesn't mean that you would even be the friend of each other. We'll all certainly be friends, Lord willing, within a family group, but siblings have different personalities and grow up in different ways and get married and move off in different jobs and you know, stay connected but also grow in their own directions. A friend is someone who's not growing in a different direction but who grows closer to you, who grows in your direction. It's like two vines growing close together and intertwining and moving forward together, stronger because they're together. Reminds me of Ecclesiastes, you know? A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So you get your friend yourself and God together, and you're stronger. You will not come to ruin because you'll have this support. You know, friendship requires being able to say hard things too. When these wounds from a friend come, they can't be delivered via email or text. Otherwise, the friendship itself will suffer. And when we have hard conversations, a friend will have the courage and the kindness to do it face-to-face. And that's the hope for that friendship, that when they talk face-to-face, things will work out. And when they do work out, then you see that that person cares for you, and you recognize that this is now the wounds of a friend. This is not the wounds of an enemy. This is a person who has my best interest at heart, not someone who's trying to tear me down. So there has to be this kind of face-to-face thing. And, and when we see the expression on someone else's face as we're talking to them, 
Like we need that because if someone just tells us all our faults in an email, we can't hear any of the love or compassion that they want to communicate. All we see is just the hard, cold truth. And I don't think emotionally most of us are prepared to handle that and survive that. We need it to come from a person. We don't need impersonal truth. We need a personal delivery, especially of difficult news. We need to be like God. We need to build ourselves upon his character. And we need to do it face to face. And we need to initiate wherever we see conflict. The last word I have on this for us in this part of the conversation is related to technology a little bit because technology makes this worse, but it can apply even to face-to-face -face conversations. It certainly can apply to the phone. Phone's probably the biggest culprit of this, but there is such a thing as too many words. Just too much talking. Too much has been said. Quantity. Once you get to a certain quantity of words, you're going to start sinning. That's what the Bible says. If you start talking and you don't stop when you're done talking about the important stuff, you're going to keep on talking about all the unimportant stuff. If you don't stop when you're done talking about the good stuff, you're going to start talking about all the not-so-good stuff. Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, sin is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So where there is many words, sin is not absent. Sin is there. You know, if you're on the phone with someone getting caught up with them, have a little mental countdown timer in your head and recognize when the conversation has transitioned from getting caught up to now talking about the other people in your lives. The Bible calls that gossip. Or judging or slamming people other than the two of you on the phone. The Bible calls that slander. Recognize when that clock kind of dings and just hang up. Move on. When you're online for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, after a certain point, there's nothing more good to say or see, and that's when our mind and our words begin to falter. They get off track. And we find ourselves saying and doing things that we shouldn't. When there's too many words, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. So if you want to be a wise person, if you want to be deemed prudent, restrain your lips. Don't talk too much. Or how about this from Proverbs? It talks about specific types of speech. And these could be ones that we have via Facebook, via text, via phone conversation, you know, the things that cause conflict, the things that we need to be on high alert against. Proverbs 26, 18 says, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. So have there ever been sarcastic comments from any of us, online or in email or in text or in some form of communication, and then afterwards, like, oh, I was just joking. But it was that sarcastic joking where there really is an element of truth. Or we, maybe it was just completely true, and afterwards we just said we're joking because we wanted to like, take it back. Proverbs 26, 18 
talks about something that we find in the year 2018. And that's no coincidence because people are people and God knows how people are made and this is his advice. So when we deceive our neighbor and it says I'm only joking, it's like an ad man who, a madman who's throwing firebrands, arrows, and death. All right, verse 20 continues. More advice. For lack of wood, the fire goes out and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. If there's no one whispering about what this person said, what this person did, the fire goes out. The quarrel goes out. All those whispers, all those words, you can't believe what that person said. Or, I can't believe they did that. Or why did she say that? Or did you hear this? That's wood for the fire of conflict. Stop talking before you get to that point. And if someone starts talking and throwing wood on your fire, stop them from talking. Say, I've got to go. I'll talk to you later. Stop the conversation before there's a fire because where there's a fire, where there's people throwing wood on the fire, it's going to spread. Verse 21 continues, As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. This is not just someone who is in a, a moment of this. This is someone who has that identity of a quarrelsome man. The person who's quarrelsome by nature, by identity, always throwing sparks on stuff, always kindling fires. Be careful and stay away from and put an end to those sparks. Verse 22 continues, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. You know, it feels good when someone tells you something that you didn't know. Now you know something about that person. It feels good. It's like a delicious thing. It's like satisfying to hear something or to know something. But that's the whisperer that's leading to conflict, which is leading to division, which is the cancer that's going to kill your marriage, kill your friendships, kill the church, kill our testimony as Christians in this world. Don't eat it. Verse 23 Continues, like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Looks pretty on the outside, but it's dead and disgusting on the inside. Verse 24 continues, whoever hates disguises himself with his lips, and he harbors deceit in his heart. In his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. And though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. So there is such a thing as a wicked heart with flattering lips. The person who's deceiving, it's all going to come out. Stay away from that person. Be aware of that person. Speak to resolve the conflicts that that person starts, but it's going to come out in the assembly, in your family, everyone knows who the gossips are. In the church, everyone knows who the whisperers are. In the community, in politics, in everything, in schools, in friendship circles, we know who the ones are that like to stir the pot, strike those sparks, and we know who the ones are that are going to whisper. All of those things are starting fires that will ruin and burn both the ones who start it and anyone who gets close. So speak into it, try to resolve, try to throw water on that fire, but also make sure that we're not just keeping close company with people who are the quarrelsome man, the whisperer, the flatterer, or the deceiver. 
not who we're called to be. And James 1.26 says that we are called to be exactly the opposite. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. We cannot talk this way. Too many words, too many inflammatory words, and call ourselves Christians. Otherwise, our religion is worthless. This so-called worship and faith that we have is being undermined every time we talk with evil, wicked, and harmful words. Every time we go on Facebook and say something insensitive or cruel or angry, and then come to church and worship and praise and sing, we're undermining our credibility. And when we go out into the workplace and tell people that we went to church and they hear how we talk, it undermines our credibility. God's communication is always communicating truth. It's communicating hope. It's communicating love. So if we are going to model God, we need to be speaking only truth in love. That will make us the light in the darkness. Let's not talk too much. Let's not talk the wrong way. Let's not use the wrong mediums to talk. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves getting burned and burning those around us when instead we're called to be the light of the world and we're called to be peacemakers, the sons of God. So please consider these things the next time that you find yourself in conflict, the next time you feel the technology that you're using creating conflict. Recognize who your voice is supposed to sound like, your Father in heaven, and choose whatever medium, whatever direction, whatever ways you can to bring that voice of God here on earth.